You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dunnis, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, the completely insane nature of the MMA news cycle has once again caused us to completely abandon our normal format. Yep. I'm into it. You'll recall, Ben, that when we last recorded the CME, uh, we were feeling lucky because Tony Ferguson had just pulled out of UFC 223, which at this point feels like it happened about six lifetimes ago. Yeah, we were so young then. We thought maybe the MMA gods had smiled upon us because they cut us a break because that had happened on a Sunday night. Yeah, lucky us. Nothing else could happen, right? Instead of happening on a Tuesday, like uh, when news normally breaks right after we release the show, little did we know. Ben, that Tony Ferguson dropping out was just the fucking tune-up. Yeah, that was the the MMA gods doing the thing where they like stretch out their quads before you get ready to run a street race. Yeah, Tony Ferguson dropping out was the MMA gods slamming two beers before they even drive to work in the morning. That's what it was. (laughs) Wow, that got a little darker than I was planning, but okay. I mean, you know those guys are rolling into work. Buzzed, right? Consider what has occurred. Of course they are. Well, their job seems to be to just wreck shit. So So here's what we're going to do this week. There's frankly too, hashtag too much shit going on uh, for us to stick to our normal three-round format. So we are going to spend about the first half of this show talking about the craziness of the UFC 223 fight week. Uh, most specifically, Conor McGregor showing up and throwing a metal hand truck through the window of a charter bus full of UFC athletes. Allegedly. Yeah, seemingly. Uh, and then around the middle of the show, we're going to do listener mail. And after that, we will spend the remaining time, which I hope is a good chunk of time, uh, talking about the two title fights that did happen at UFC 223 and the implications uh, moving forward both at lightweight and in the strawweight division. At what point in this plan do I give you a pink eye? Should we do that now? I would hope that you... I'll just uh, reach right over there. Just don't you, uh, have, you had, have you gotten pink eye from one of your kids yet? Man... As I told your wife on Twitter today, you seem to have forgotten that my brood essentially invented motherfucking pink eye. We spent like the first year and a half of my oldest child's life just passing pink eye around between the three of us. Real, okay. See, because I had heard that, or at least what they tell you when like you have a kid who gets pink eye and they're like, oh, it's adults don't usually get it. And I had, I foolishly, what? I believed no, that. Adults fucking get it. <laughs> I foolishly believed it, but then I got sick like unrelated to that, I think it weakened my immune system enough to get it. This is a word of advice for anybody out there who ever might happen to contract pink eye. If you go on the internet, you know what it'll tell you is that, uh, hey, it'll clear up on its own anyway. No, you need to go get them drops. You need those drops. Those drops make a big difference. I did not have the drops because I they kind of came down with the actual symptoms of the pink eye when I was on the road and spent an entire day with cross-country air travel sitting there with pink eye. And it feels like your your eye is burning and you just want to gouge it out with your thumb to be done with it. Then the minute you get those drops in there, then it's just kind of visually off-putting, but otherwise totally okay. 
I actually have a, uh, or at least the last time I had to use them, I had developed a uh, sensitivity to the drops. I think because I had to use them so fucking much. So uh, the last couple times I've had pink eye, I haven't. I have not even been able to get the drops. I had to get uh, the ointment. Oh no! Never you had to get, put ointment in your eyeball. Yeah, never get the ointment because it's almost as bad as the actual pink eye. It's just fucking goop. You just have goop all over your face. Jesus Christ! For however long it takes you to get rid of the pink eye. Yeah, I was sitting there wondering, like, man, I thought I was kind of, like, careful to make sure to wash my hands and everything so I wouldn't get the pink eye from my youngest daughter who had it. And then yesterday I was hanging out with her and we're playing a game and she coughs and dutifully, dutifully as she's been taught, kind of covers her mouth as she coughs um, and then uses that same exact hand just instant later and put, places it over my mouth. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's how this happened. That's how it happens. This show is just a walking advertisement for not having children at this point. Yeah. Uh, before we go any further, let's note that this episode of the CME is once again brought to you in part by our longtime sponsors at Fulton and Rourke. If you want to anoint yourself with the finest men's grooming products I have ever personally used, and I know you do, you simply won't find better than Fulton and Rourke from their solid colognes to their foamless shave cream to their face wash and two-in-one shampoo and body wash. I use it and love it. A lot of our listeners already use it and love it, and you should use it too. You'll love it. They'll love it, won't they, Ben? You're damn right they will, Chad. Last week, you remember we heard from listener Eric Murphy about his experience with the shampoo and body wash. This week, let's hear what Eric had to say about Fulton and Rourke's Sterling Cologne, Chad. Eric Murphy writes, I didn't think I'd dig a fragrance, let alone a wax-based one, but this is well-deserving of the hype. I was convinced after one whiff it reminds me of a bygone era, an age of gritty do-it-yourself men wearing uncomfortable wool jackets. The notes of leather and tobacco honestly make me feel about 10% more manly, and the backbone of vanilla makes the profile approachable. I got compliments two days in a row, and it turns out, when you smell good, you feel good. I truly feel more confident when I wear it. It's such a small daily step that pays off more than I expected. There it is. Kind of sounded like we changed Eric Murphy's whole life. Uh, but if you want to ride the Sterling train or try out any of Fulton and Rourke's other fine products, just go to the website FultonandRourke.com. Don't forget to use the promo code CME at checkout to get 15% off your order. Again, that's FultonandRourke.com. As always, if you enjoy the Co-Main Event Podcast, you can do us a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you listen on. That stuff really does help our ranking and our rating, so lend us a hand if you've got a minute and uh, give us a positive <coughs> review over there wherever you uh, listen to the show. Ben, how's the Patreon doing? You want to take a guess how many patrons we're up to right now? I, I'm always very wrong, but how about like six, six, sixty? Oh my God. Jesus Christ, look at you. You're pathetic. That... 715. Wow, man. we're up over 700? That's right. Jeez, Louise. How dare you underestimate the power of this podcast and the willingness of its very generous listeners to get on board with this, especially as existing patrons already know, since we started our serialized noir fiction, which everybody loves. Man, I, I tell you what, Ben wrote it, so it pains me to say this, but it's actually really good. It's really, he sent, he sent it to me before we put it online for the Patreon people, and it's, it's fun. It's really, really good. It's a little something we're calling the old man and the C, but that is the letter C, to get us out of any uh, kind of copyright infringement uh, concerns. But yeah, just uh, your, your classic ripping yarn about what happens when an aging pro fighter gets pulled into a mystery that takes him down some dangerous rabbit holes. Plus, this week, this week, for those of you who don't like to read, or are functionally illiterate, and that's why you prefer podcasts. 
This week, we're returning back to that idea of the brunch of champions, where you know the UFC, they're in Glendale, Arizona this week for the UFC on Fox show with Justin Gaethje and Dustin Poirier, which, Christ, I don't even know if we're going to end up talking about that. Probably not. Uh, that's going to be a crackerjack of a fight. Um, but they're going to do you know their usual early weigh-in thing on Friday morning. And so around the time when they should be wrapping up the early weigh-in time, what are we thinking, around 11 a.m. mountain 11, time? 11 a.m. I'm coming over to your house with pastries and coffee. See, now that's just a good time. We're going to live stream that one for patrons only, uh, and you'll you'll be able to catch the, the video stream just like you did for the Pride FC drinking challenge, except this time we'll be drinking coffee and stuffing our faces with pastries, which I like how you're still keeping it vague. We don't know if you're bringing donuts, you're bringing muffins, maybe even a scone. It's going to be a game time decision. Okay. I like that. Get in, get in, join the fun. Go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash co-main event. All right, let's talk about this UFC 223 fight week. Ben, uh, after Tony Ferguson's withdrawal, I got to say UFC 223 fight week actually started off on fairly normal terms. You know, the UFC, as it so often does, just reloaded with Max Holloway, which is both a testament to uh, the UFC's dominance over the industry and I think a testament to the athletes of the sport being willing to go out there and, and you know, uh, change opponents, take on someone different. If you're Max Holloway, uh, you step up to 155 to fight Habib Nurmagomedov for the lightweight title. Things more or less seem to be uh, on schedule. But a couple of things happened that later turned out to be harbingers of doom. Well, they turned out to be actual doom. Right, yeah, in retrospect. Uh, the first thing was that we heard that Max Holloway was going to be cutting an absolute assload of weight. Which kind of an, even when you get a guy from down away class, when you're doing it on a six days notice, yeah, come on, that's kind of inevitable. That's a technical term, ass load of weight. Uh, the second thing that happened was that on Tuesday, I think it was Tuesday, there was a video that emerged of Habib Nurmagomedov and Artem Lobov getting into an altercation in the hallway of the fighter hotel out there in Brooklyn. And I, I you know, in the wake of that, we've heard that bad blood has been simmering between uh, the straight blast Jim Dublin guys and, you know, Habib Nurmagomedov's crew for some time now. Uh, and so those guys basically getting into a, a, a verbal uh, spat in the hallway of this hotel during which we got to hear some of Habib Nurmagomedov's uh, signature trash talk. Well, right. And also he already had his scary weigh-in face where he's cutting weight. So it looks like he gets a little bit of Skeletor face with the cheekbones popping out. Plus, worth noting, Nurmi rolled up on the goat Artem Lobov with like a whole crew while Artem Lobov is kind of there by his lonesome. Yeah, he did. You know, I'm going to say this uh, just as an, as an aside. You know who fucking earns their money for the UFC? Who's that? Chris Costello, the UFC PR guy who, at least in my experience, he's, he's like one of the nicer and, and like better, more approachable PR guys for yeah, the UFC. Guy. Every time I see a video of him, he's breaking up a fight. Every single time, whenever there's like a, a near uh, scrap between UFC fighters in any kind of backstage area, Chris Costello is always out there pulling one of the guys away. And in this case, I think it was Artem Lobov. He's like pulling him away from Habib Nurmagomedov. And I, I just, I want to say, I hope that Chris Costello is getting hazard pay for being out there constantly breaking up fights between guys that could kill everyone with their bare hands. Yeah. No, do you think that they tell people that when they apply for that job? Like, look, in addition to normal PR responsibilities, we also are going to need you to have a background in conflict resolution and clinch grappling. Do you, ha do you have those 
taken care of because if not, you might want to sign up for some classes in each of those immediately. Also, just 24 hours a day. Could happen anytime. Yeah. I mean, you're just strolling through the hall of the hotel. You might be going Artem downstairs Lobov. to get yourself a cup of coffee. Yeah. Next thing you know. Habib Nurmagomedov and a hundred other Habib Nurmagomedovs just rolled up on you. you got to uh, convince a bunch of Dagestani dudes to just calm down and everybody return to your separate corners. And they were doing that thing during this altercation that seems to happen a lot where they walk partway away. And you're like, oh, okay, this is over. This this situation has de-escalated. And then suddenly they turn around like they forgot to say something <laughs> that they absolutely had to say. And they walk back. Two of the highlights here, Ben, uh, Habib Nurmagomedov, at least according to the translation, telling Artem Lobov that he was going to take off his pants if they got into a physical altercation. Okay, now I saw this one reported. He was threatening to take off Artem Lobov's pants? I think that's what it was, wasn't it? Okay. I mean, it's possible that, I, that I've that i misconstrued this. My first question is, is it implied that he will first remove his shoes? Because you've, if you've ever tried to get your pants off before you get your shoes off, that's a mess. So is he, is he really saying, I will take off your shoes and then your pants? Because what what does that look like? I assumed that it was uh, like kind of an old school grappler thing, right? Like we've... You've, I'm sure you've heard this just about, I'm not going to say the guy's name, but former MMA fighter fought in the UFC, fought in the IFL, uh, story about him choking guys unconscious out in the bars. Dennis and Holman? Taking their shoes. Well, you just did go ahead and say his name, so yeah. there you go. Uh, there was then, a legend anyway that we were told. Right. And, and, then, he, and then didn't he also, according to the legend, he took the guy's shoes, he just he choked him out. He like choked him out in lieu of fighting him. Basically, the guy wanted to fight him, and the story was that like Dennis Holman somewhat mercifully was just like, okay, I'll just choke you. Choked him, put him to sleep, took off his shoes, and then, so the story went, tied the shoes to the back bumper of his truck and drove around with them like that for weeks. That was the one. That was the story I was thinking of. Uh, does it seem to you like it just must be fucking exhausting to be one of these guys? To be a Habib Nurmagomedov slash Conor McGregor slash Artem Lobov guy where it seems like you're just wandering around getting in altercations all the time. If it were, don't you think they would stop? Because it is a choice they are making to do this. It's not like Habib sees uh, Artem Lobov in the hotel and thinks, well, this is inevitable. I can't stop this now. He has to make a choice to go up there and, and start this confrontation. Well, it's interesting that you say that because in the way Conor McGregor's take on the situation was, in fact, that it had to happen. That it was a thing that just had to be done. <laughs> you know, all right. I guess we're are we gonna, just going to go ahead and get into this yeah, whole van okay, thing now? Yeah, let's fast forward to Thursday which frankly was a real goddamn emotional roller coaster ride for everybody. I have to be honest with you, Ben. When I first saw Conor McGregor show up at the media day for UFC 223, when the footage first emerged of him walking into the building surrounded by a crew of cohorts, my first thought was, yes, right? Because this was a week for the UFC where you had a lot of rumors that Brock Lesnar was going to return. They, uh, they confirmed CM Punk's next fight. Uh, and to see Connor get back in the mix right before they were about to do this 20th anniversary press conference, it seemed to me, at least at first blush, like exactly what the UFC needed. Like, okay, here we go. We're going to get some momentum going again. You got Connor back in the mix. And then, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, okay. Now, imagine this scenario. Connor McGregor and his whole crew show up. They are angry at Khabib Nurmagomedov for the whole Artem Lobov confrontation in the hotel. He's back there on the loading docks, and he does the thing where he starts out to do, where he's just kind of like 
pounding his fist on the side of the, the door of the van, yelling at Khabib to get out of the van, yelling a whole bunch of stuff. Say it stops there. You made your point. You harassed the van a little bit. The van drives off while you get like held back and you're yelling. Then we have ourselves a kind of awesome situation, right? Like as far as future fight promotion goes. Yes, absolutely. And like uh, I saw this floated around on the internet a little bit about whether or not this incident was quote unquote staged. And actually a friend of mine uh, who I used to work with who does not follow mixed martial arts texted me out of the blue, I think on, on Thursday afternoon after all this stuff had happened to ask me if this situation was staged. And my response to that is to say no. But I also think it depends a little bit on what you mean by staged. Because I think like you just brought up, Ben, I think that the UFC would have been happy as, as all get out if what had happened here was that Conor McGregor showed up to the UFC 223 media day. He got in everybody's face. He, tr he did some trash talk with Khabib. And at the time he did some trash talk with Max Holloway. Maybe there was even some pushing and shoving. Maybe they get pulled apart by Chris Costello and UFC PR. Maybe a shoe gets thrown. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. And I think, and if that's what it was, like, I think that the UFC, uh, would have been super happy about it. But I don't think that they expected or wanted it to go the way that it did. No. I, if you were going to stage it, you would set maybe a certain parameter, some limits on exactly how forceful you would want this confrontation to get. You would not be like, okay, we're down for anything up to, up to and including the throwing of a hand truck through a window. You would not say that. That's where the point where you're like, okay, clearly – Shit has gone completely off the rails here, and it's it's not fun anymore. If you were just doing the thing where you're pounding on the door, saying, hey, get out of that van, ah, oh, we're going to kill you, ah, you know, doing all this stuff, then it's like just, you know, WWE type thing. It's good, like, promotional material for a future fight. Everybody's going to pass around the, the footage of it. It's also going to help bring a little bit of shine to UFC 223. It makes it feel more like a fight about something. It also reminds a whole lot of people who aren't in the MMA bubble that UFC 223 is even happening. But instead, you get this complete melee that leaves Conor McGregor in some legal trouble, knocks three fights off the, the card. Yeah, well, that's right there. That's how you know that it, that even if it was staged, it got out of hand, right? Because you would never book something if you were the UFC that causes uh, three of the 12 fights that you have scheduled for pay-per-view to get eliminated, to get canceled, basically. Not for pay for the entire card. Though it does end up with a nine-fight card, which... I enjoyed the I'm hell out of that. Kissing my fingers right now. That's right. Wow. Hey, Chef kiss. That's. I'm. I'm not kidding about that. Once sat there and watched this nine fight card and felt like, yes, let's do this every weekend. Can we please? Do you want to hear my one conspiracy theory? It's not really even a conspiracy theory, but my one theory about maybe what led to this actually getting out of hand. Oh, by all means. Did this thing escalate to the point of throwing a hand truck through the window of a charter bus? Because Conor McGregor is chronically late for everything. Like, was the original plan, even if it's oh, just God. Conor McGregor's plan, like, was his plan, we'll go to the media day, uh, like, I'll show up in the back of the room yelling, who the fuck is this guy, and everything will be great. It'll go off like gangbusters, it'll be bananas. And then, because Conor McGregor can't fucking get anywhere on time, they miss it. They miss the media day and they show up late and everyone is already on the buses. Okay. And then you arrive at the loading dock of the Barclays Center and you're like, okay, now what? Now what are we going to do? And he's like, well, I'm mad at Habib Nurmagomedov. Let's do, let's just do it with the bus. 
See, here's where you you lose me is in this idea that I'm so mad at one of the what like 20 people inside the bus that I will attack the bus as a proxy for this person. And through it all, the guy who will be visibly least bothered by any of it is the one guy I'm angry at. Like you you see them when they're all pulled like in the embedded video where they're all kind of pulled off the bus and brought you know backstage somewhere and Dana White's uh, talking to everybody trying to get control of the situation and you know Michael Chiesa's bleeding other people have been showered with glass Reed Harris thought he was going to die Rose Namajunas is sitting there trying to tell everybody she's good but kind of the look on her face suggests otherwise the guy who is not at all bothered is Nurmagomedov like that I think it's as far as the ratio of like risks to reward or like output to like effectiveness that looks pretty weak on Conor McGregor's part. And then he's probably going to get sued by several different people. And who knows what the the criminal outcome is going to be. The most interesting thing to all of this, I think is going to be what does the UFC actually do? Yeah. You know how you can tell when Dana White is really mad. His face changes colors. His entire head changes colors. No, that's sort of like normal run of play for Dana White. In my opinion, you, when you can tell Dana White is really mad, it's when he's sitting at a table with his hands clasped in front of him, talking in a normal voice, saying reasonable things, just kind of being like, yeah, we have no idea what happened. And like he did, you know, in classic sort of like fight promoter, uh, hyperbole, he did say it was disgusting and despicable and the most, the worst thing ever to happen in the UFC, et cetera, et cetera. But like, I know the, when I know, oh, you fucked up is when Dana White is just sitting at a table full of reporters, just sounding like the reasonable one in this entire situation. He did also, though, uh, when pressed further on it, say, hey, a lot worse happens in other Okay, yeah, that was the next, that was three days later, right? Or two days later. That was Saturday night after the event. Every day that passes, he seems to think it was a little less of a big deal. Right, which is, frankly, what we all expect from this situation, right? Because you asked the question, what can the UFC do to Conor McGregor? And I think that the answer is sort of like nothing, right? Like, you can suspend the guy. You're saying they'll do nothing? Yeah. (laughs) They'll do nothing cunts? That's right. Uh, Like, you can't cut him obviously, because then you play right into the guy's hands. Well, you play right into his hands if you do nothing. He's out there saying, you'll strip nothing, you do nothing, cunts, you'll do nothing. If you do nothing, you proved him right. So what I think you'd do if you're the UFC, and I have no idea if this is what they will do or what, don't you suspend the guy, like, quote-unquote, suspend him for, like, eight months? Suspend him for a period during which he wasn't planning on fighting anyway. Right. You suspend him for eight months, and then you essentially get him back for the New Year's Eve show. Which, hey, man, if you told me... If you're the UFC and you get Habib Nurmagomedov versus Conor McGregor or whoever, and maybe you even do it in Russia. I know they're talking about doing Russia in September, but like if you do Russia as the New Year's Eve show uh, with Conor McGregor versus Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, isn't everybody happy at that point? Don't you don't you kill it on the buy rate? You make a bunch of money with the live gate. You have a huge spectacle. God knows you have this footage of the hand truck going through the window of the bus, uh, which is already, I think, the most viewed embedded episode of all time, including, by the way, the embedded episodes about Mayweather McGregor. Uh, don't, doesn't, doesn't that heal everything at that point? First of all, I don't believe they're going to Russia this year anyway. Um, but yeah, you're saying let's suspend him until, say, December 28th. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. And, you know, and then they come back and do a New Year's Eve around New Year's Eve is show uh, in Las Vegas or New York or, or wherever. And yeah, you make a ton of goddamn money. Also, though, 
imagine it was Ray Borg who threw the uh, the hand truck through the window of the bus, angry at somebody inside. He'd be looking for work, right? This week, wouldn't Ray Borg be looking for work? He'd be looking for work the moment you hear the psh of the glass breaking. He'd be fired as of that moment and just buried by the UFC. Have you seen the still that's out there on the internet of Artem Lobov holding his face? Yes, I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. He's experiencing the roller coaster of friendship with Conor McGregor. On one hand, you got this guy who will cross an ocean uh, with a whole crew of dudes to get your back after he feels like somebody has tried to, you know, boss up on you. On the other hand, one minute you're like, yeah, here, I'm back with my friends. This is a good feeling. I have I have a backup now. I have a team with me. Yeah, that's right. We're banging on the van. We're yelling, get out of there. That's right. And then you see the hand truck go flying through the window and you think, what have I done? My God, what have I done? So ultimately, Conor McGregor turns himself in there to the NYPD in Brooklyn. He gets charged with a bunch of crimes, uh, none of which will ultimately mean a damn thing, I assume. Immediately on the heels of this madness, Max Holloway gets ruled out of the fight. Hours later, right? We we were just, like the PTSD was just wearing off from the hand truck going through the window when we find out Max Holloway is out of the fight. Rumors about Anthony Pettis, rumors about Paul Felder. Ultimately, uh, we settle in on Raging Al Quinta as the guy who's going to fill in for Max Holloway, who filled in for Tony Ferguson against Habib Nurmagomedov. And if you had told me, Ben, on Monday, hey, man, this week ends with Al Iaquinta fighting Habib Nurmagomedov for the UFC lightweight title. Do you want to take the ride? I enthusiastically would have said yes. <laughs> Best moment for me is Al walking out during like the ceremonial weigh-ins, and as soon as he comes through the curtains, he has his arms up, and he looks at the crowd, and he just says, what the fuck? And we're just like, yep, that's that says it all, Al. They <laughs> You know, they should have sent a poet, but they sent Ally Aquinta instead, and it worked out for everybody. You know, and they I like the way that they tried to sell it on the broadcast, basically, like as honestly as they possibly could, not trying to pivot and be like, you know what? One of the most dangerous men in the world, Ally Aquinta. You know, they didn't really do that. They were just like, he uh, will is just a wild man who doesn't care, will go out there, probably not that bothered by having to do this and the, the magnitude of the switch and everything, and is just going to go out there and uh, try to do his best. And he's just kind of crazy, so who knows what will happen. That's as good a sales pitch as you can give us there. Yeah, actually, and like you just hit the nail on the head. Like Right at the beginning when they're talking in the broadcast, Joe Rogan, uh, John Anik, and Jimmy Smith, and Joe, Joe Rogan actually says, my favorite thing about this fight is that Al Iaquinta is crazy. <laughs> yes. And I thought to myself, you know what? He's right. And that's one of the reasons why I appreciate this new incarnation of the UFC broadcast team. Uh, and frankly, uh, even though at times I've, I've felt like at odds with some of the guys' opinions in the past, like one of the reasons why I appreciate having Joe Rogan on the on the show is that he will occasionally break things down to the brass tacks of one of the things that's awesome about this fight is that Al Iaquinta is crazy. Yeah, well, and here again, though, you see, like, the weird situation that happens in MMA that does not happen anywhere else, right, where all these guys show up to work this week, last week, with one understanding about what they're there to do. And then as things start to change, you got to be willing to – Accept a more fluid interpretation of what your job is going to be. And look at Anthony Pettis. 
I don't know. We've really talked about that part yet. Like where it seemed like before we got to Ally Quinta, it was all right. Let's pull Anthony Pettis up. He's a former champ. Have him fight Khabib. Then you you know you got yourself a little bit more uh, of a sellable matchup. Maybe more people know Anthony Pettis. And then the word is that Anthony Pettis wants too much money. And I think I, the the rumor that I had heard was that the UFC offered him you know one sales fig or one one money figure plus points on the pay-per-view and that maybe Anthony Pettis was understandably concerned that points on the pay-per-view were not going to be worth a whole lot for this one uh, and so that he was looking for something more like going forward exactly what kind of a deal that he wanted to get uh, and the UFC decides you know what nope too expensive who else you got Ally Quinto will do it he's crazy then that's where you end up with this it's a wild thing for like a sport this just doesn't happen anywhere else where it's just like all right we had a few unforeseen disasters befall us, so now we're just kind of looking around, being like, who'll do it and who'll do it cheap? First guy to put his hand up, that's the guy we're giving it to. Right, and you got to, like, especially in MMA, you've got all these factors that also don't come into play in mainstream sports where, you know, you're doing this in New York with the New York State Athletic Commission, and uh, I saw Paul Felder, I think, was on the MMA Fortnite today saying uh, he believed that if this fight had gone down in Las Vegas that he would have got it, that they would have given it to Paul Felder. Uh, as it turned out, for whatever reason, New York State Athletic Commission didn't really want, wouldn't let Felder go in there uh, for what, you know, whatever happened with, with Pettis happened. And we do uh, settle on Al Iaquinta, who originally weighed in at 155.2 pounds. So again, not only do you have like a late substitution, uh, you basically have, uh, you know, uh, the, the Philadelphia 76ers filling in for the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA finals here, but you also have a situation I mean, where it's more like you have like college players who came to watch the game and you're like pulling them out of the audience being like, Hey, come on. Uh, you also have a situation where the New York state athletic commission didn't re really recognize it as a title fight for ally Quinta. Uh, the UFC, I think ultimately did the right thing and came out and said, you know what, in a late replacement situation like this, uh, the guy only weighed 155.2. If he wins the title, basically, we're going to consider... If he wins the fight, we're basically going to consider him the champion. Which is fair, because he did weigh 155.2 in his underwear. But tell me this. At least for me, this whole incident and all the, the changes and backup changes and everything that happened and the UFC deciding, you know what, we were saying this is a title fight even if the commission doesn't say so. It did somehow further damage to the idea of the UFC title as the pinnacle of the sport. Because throughout this entire thing where you're, you know, Tony Ferguson gets injured, now his title's gone. He, he was the interim champ, but no, he, he hurt his knee so that he's not anymore. Conor McGregor was the lightweight champ because he beat the lightweight champ. But then, you know, we waited this long for him to defend this title. We booked this other fight. And the minute the first punch is thrown, he ceases to be lightweight champ. Also, the commission says that this is not a title bout. We say, screw it. We decided that it is. So it's, it's a title bout because we say so. All this stuff really highlights for me, which something we, I think, have talked about and have realized before, but it really becomes clear that these titles are just the, they're the UFC's titles. They don't belong to anyone else. You win one, you take one home, you put it on your mantelpiece. It doesn't mean it's yours. The UFC reserves the right at any time to yank that thing away, to take away whatever like importance it's supposed to be imbued with, to just give it to somebody else if they want to. It, it makes it hard to then turn around and sell us on this idea as like, 
Here's why this fight matters. Here's why this one is important because it's got this title. You can do anything you want with those titles, and you do frequently. Yeah, it's just hard to hold those two ideas in your head at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think I feel like if the last couple years have taught us anything, it's that the UFC titles are basically a prop. Like the 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 gig was up as far as I was concerned the moment uh, UFC lobbyists went to Congress and said that the UFC titles were just ceremonial, that they didn't really mean anything. They were an award for the best fighter of that night. Right. So, uh, yeah, like clearly you saw a lot of that played out in real time this week. I just think that most hardcore MMA fans, at least fans that follow it as closely as most of the people who are probably listening to this show, had probably already come around to that idea. And like mainstream fans, I still don't know if they are going to know or care. Like the thing that was cool about Max Holloway fighting Habib Nurmagomedov uh, and potentially pulling off the upset was the idea that you could have the featherweight and lightweight champion then fighting the featherweight and lightweight champion, at which point you could have put four belts on the poster, right? So like, these are props. These are, these are things you're using to, to, to sell the fight to people who might not ordinarily buy it unless they're having their breakfast and they see, uh, four belts on the poster. Right. But doesn't that also have the potential to serve as a barrier to entry for those people? Because it's like, you're trying to describe to one of your friends why they should come over and pitch in on the pay-per-view this weekend. And you're like, Oh, it's a lightweight title fight. And they're like, Oh really? I thought like Conor McGregor, I heard that guy was the champion. You're like, well, okay, he was, but he's not going to be anymore. And two guys who neither one of them are the champion. One of them's a contender. One of them really isn't. They're going to fight. And then they're just going to get the belt. Like, if you have to try to explain this stuff and make sense of it to somebody who hasn't been following along for the whole ride, doesn't it just seem ridiculous? Yeah, but it all seems ridiculous to me. And, and okay, I, I, I guess I've gotten to the point. One of the things I was thinking about this week was like when Conor McGregor throws a, a metal dolly through the window of a bus, does it just make us look like a clown show to the mainstream press, the mainstream media and casual fans? And I guess at the end of the day, I've decided like they think it's a clown show anyway. And at this point, I've been around long enough to realize they're never not going to think that it's a clown show. Well, and if Conor McGregor can throw a hand truck through a, a bus window and the UFC won't really do anything about it, they'll, the UFC is just like, all right, how long do we have to wait before we can make that fight uh, before it, it doesn't seem like you know we're giving him a free pass, even though what we would like to do is give him a free pass, then it is a clown show, man. I mean, that, it's not like they're perceiving it the wrong way. No, I think we're just making peace with that in, to one degree or another, that this is the reality of what, what we're doing here. What I wonder is what goes through your mind as one of the other people on that bus. Say Michael Chiesa, Ray Borg. I mean, uh, what goes through your mind other than I'm going to sue this motherfucker? But if you're like Rose Namajunas or somebody else, especially like let's take Rose Namajunas as a good example because she is a champion. She's there to defend her title. Uh, she is you know trying to get her mind right in the days before the fight. Hand truck goes throwing through the butt, flying through the bus window, you know, sh shower of glass everywhere. She's not actually hurt or anything, but she has got to be sitting there thinking, what the hell, man? Yeah. I don't need this shit right now. Uh, and then the UFC's take on it is going to be like, all right, we're going to turn around and use that footage as marketing purposes for a future fight. Uh, and even if he did cause the cancellation of three bouts on this fight card and just create a huge distraction for everybody else. So what? We got to get that money. Yeah. And that's where I would be sitting there feeling like, okay, I'm understanding what my value is here. Here's, here's the one guy who can throw a hand truck through a window is Conor McGregor, and he does. And even if it hurts the rest of us, actually, literally, physically hurts us, doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I guess we'll see what happens, right? But I think that we're uh, 
I think we're on the right track here for uh, what the ultimate fallout of this will be. Anyway, heavy sigh. Uh, what we ultimately end up with is Habib Nurmagomedov versus Ally Aquinta in the main event of UFC 223. We will talk about that in a few minutes. First, like we normally do much earlier during the show, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Roland Bleasy, who writes, Is it too early to say hashtag Zabit time? The Dagestani knuckle game cartel deployed a giant featherweight Saturday who proceeded to do all kinds of wild shit in the octagon. Jumping switch kicks, crazy I learned this one on a bear cub, trip takedowns, and spinning shit that would make the big homie Manny Newton proud. Magomed Sharapov, then he writes, nailed it, question mark? And Bochniak stole the show at UFC 223. Who would you match him up against next? See you in the forums at Zabit.tv. Nice. Nice. Yeah, uh, I like uh, Magomed Sharapov as my favorite new fighter whose last name sounds like it's at least two different names. That's it's a uh, you know it's not a huge category, but he's at the top right now. I just want to point out that one of the listed nicknames for Zabit Megomed Sharapov on his Wikipedia page is ZM Punk. <laughs> yes, that's not bad. I also heard uh, put forth because I suggested like, hey, this guy needs a a good nickname here. Some people were trying to make Zabeast happen, but uh, that's the other listed nickname. Yeah, I feel like we already got some beasts rolling around in MMA. Uh, the other good one I heard was Mad Mags. Mm-hmm. I'm not, into that one. Not too shabby. Uh, the emergence of Zabit Magomed Sharapov should probably not surprise anyone, just considering the overall state of mixed martial arts and uh, you know where it appears that we're heading here in 2018. Gets his third straight win in the UFC at UFC 223 uh, against Kyle Bochniak, which was a hell of a fight uh, where both guys, I think, improved their standing in the company. Uh, and Bochniak, by the way, goes out there uh, and comes comes out of this fight, despite the fact he lost a, a lopsided unanimous decision, just looking like a crazy person, looking yeah. like a wild man. Well, Bochniak is what turned it from a fight where one guy is just dominating into like an actual exciting fight to watch. Because there, there, it seemed at times where you could see uh, your boy Mad Max kind of pulling away a little bit. But Bochniak would just be like, all right, I don't care if I have to pay in blood for this one. I'm going to keep charging forward and keep giving it everything I got here, which like that's what makes that into a special fight rather than just where we see one prospect beating up another one. And this is, you know, you mentioned third straight UFC win uh, for, for Magomed Sharapov, but this is the first one where he's off of a fight. He's not on a fight pass card. He's on a real card, a real pay-per-view uh, gets kind of his moment to shine there. I think the really impressive thing was not just that he has one particular skill set that's anyone really good but that his ability to just seamlessly weave every aspect of the game together you think you look at him and you think that's a guy who can go really far in yeah. this sport in his division yeah especially like just considering his build uh his athleticism for the featherweight division like he he's towering over botchniak out there he's a big featherweight uh g- good striking great good good wrestling good good submissions uh, his previous two UFC wins were both submissions. Uh, and one of the things that's kind of fun at this point about, uh, ZM Punk is that, you know, he calls out Yair Rodriguez on the heels of this, of this victory, which, hey, book it. Hashtag yeah. would watch. That seems great. He's another one of these dudes at 145 pounds where it almost feels like you can't lose in terms of matching this guy up against almost anybody in the division. It's, uh, you know, despite the fact that, uh, Conor McGregor left the division and got stripped of the title and, and 
we've we've had maybe some some uh some months of somewhat lesser uh you know lower profile action at featherweight this this division is still an embarrassment of riches and everywhere you look there's fun stuff going on like you could match uh Magomed Sharapov up against uh Miles Jury or Hanato Moicano who we saw get a win at UFC 223 you know the damage Darren Elkins oh boy you got if 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 Chan Sung Sung Jung comes back from his military service match him up Ricardo Lamas Josh Emmett like you just start saying featherweight's names and every single one of them is a guy that you would want to see fight Zabib uh, Magomed Sharapov. Well, that's quite an advancement from where he is now, that, talking about guys up there at the top of the division. It seems like just when you look at what the UFC has done with him so far, they don't seem to be in a big hurry with him. But, man, when I watch Mad Mags against Miles Jury, hell yeah. Make that one happen. Next question this week comes to us from Neil in Northern Ireland. He writes, Can I just give a shout-out to Joe Lousen's corner? During what, doing what a corner should be there to do and protecting their fighter from a worse beating by stopping the fight. Also, as much as I love Joe Lousen, I really hope one of those guys gives him the quote, it's time to hang up the gloves talk. Recently, I've been forced to think more and more about how bad his style is for his long-term health, and I don't want to see a really smart guy end up losing that because he hung around too long. If you could discourse, I would be grateful. Very polite. Very, very polite, Neil, in Northern Ireland. Yeah, you heard them talk about this one on, just on Joe Lozon's way to the cage. There was a lot of foreshadowing about what was going to happen here when you guys like Jimmy Smith and Joe Rogan are talking about, you know what? He has a really exciting style, but I feel like there's a price to pay for it. And he's at the point when that price is really catching up with him. And then lo and behold, he goes out there and it turns out that he has about two and a half good minutes in him. And when uh, Chris Grutzenmacher is still standing there after that, then he's in deep trouble. And he's so tough that he's not going to go down. He's not going anywhere, but at the same time, things aren't getting any better for him. He's just getting slower and easier to hit as the fight wears on. And yeah, you got to give credit to his corner man. I think Steve Mays, I think it was who uh, made the decision there. Like, Hey, we're going to stop it after round two. And that's one of the rare instances where you see a corner doing what everybody is kind of silently hoping will happen. Yeah. Three losses in a row now for Joe Lousen, uh, th- <coughs> three and six, I believe in his last seven or, uh, nine fights. He's only 33 years old, but at the same time has about 40 professional MMA fights, been in the game for a long time, uh, made his debut back in 2004, and has clearly been a mainstay of the UFC since about 2006. Uh, and a, a super likable guy and a smart yeah. guy. And then one of these guys that you feel like is in the sport by choice in that he could have a, a, a high paying career doing something else. Uh, and like, I, you know, I kind of hate to, uh, to talk about, oh, it's time for this guy to to walk away because oftentimes there's a lot going on in, in fighters' lives that we don't know about. You know, Joe Lousen could be nursing numerous injuries. He could just be having a tough time. Uh, at the same time, he is one of these people that you would really hate to see suffer long-term damage because of his MMA career just because he seems like a guy who could be a great coach, a great teacher, and a guy that could have a tremendous second career for himself if he decided to, like, you know, go back to what, what computer science or whatever it is that he has a, a degree in. Well, and he probably doesn't even really need to do that if he doesn't want to. He he also has been a guy who's been kind of vocally conscientious about the risk of brain trauma in this sport and the steps that he takes uh, personally to try to mitigate some of that. But when you talk to some of the other like New England-based fighters, and they all talk about like, okay, yeah, Joe Lozon's place is one of the places you want to go to uh, when you're trying to cobble together a training camp from several different sources because that's just in a lot of ways how the scene is in, in New England. But 
everybody like these younger guys like Calvin Cutter who was on this card and a lot of those other younger New England guys, they talk about Joe Lawson as like the elder statesman from New England MMA, one of the guys who had been representing it for the longest at, at that level. He could easily, if he wants to, just be that guy. He could be the coach, the guy who runs the gym and, and help guide a lot of young fighters in their careers. And he's a smart guy, so he could probably do a really good job of that. Uh, it's just a question of if our perception of where his career is at and his perception match up. Next question this week comes to us from Paul Crick. He writes, the Canadian gangster OAM cries, apologizes, and is a destroyer of lives. It's nice. Destroyer that, of livers. Oh, livers. Uh, that makes it seem somewhat less dark than upon my uh, original reading. Yeah. Uh, it's nice that a 29-year-old man who looks like a 40-year-old 70s detective lost his TKO virginity. How far do you think he can go, and what happened to Canadian MMA? Not a lot of Canadian contenders or prospects running around. Please discourse. So clearly, Ben, this is on the uh, Fox Sports 1 preliminary card from UFC 223. Uh, do we say Olivier or Oliver? Olivier. Olivier Aubin Mercier. Aubin Mercier. Whatever. Nailed it. Uh, gets the OAM. Yep. First round TKO over Evan Dunham. Uh, kind of like the, the biggest, I mean, on a card basically full of decision, decisions aside from the corner stoppage in the Grits and Mocker Joe Lozen fight. Uh, this was the biggest highlight TKO at UFC 223, just, uh, 53 seconds into the first round over a super tough dude that we all agree in Evan Dunham, uh, is a tough guy to go out there and, 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 you know, stop in the first round. So yeah, a huge win, uh, for OAM. Well, yeah. And, uh, his general attitude, I think, is a little bit refreshing when we see a whole bunch of, like, tough guys confronting each other in hotel lobbies and shit like that. And then he has a bit of a sense of humor about himself. I'm going to show you this picture on Twitter in case you haven't seen it. It's a tweet that, I did see uh, that. Yeah. where he posts and he says, USA have UFC gangsters in the Diaz. Ireland have a UFC gangster in Connor. Russia have a UFC gangster in Khabib. Don't worry, Canada. I got your back. And then we see here a picture of Olivier Albion Mercier. Uh, just in shorts and a t-shirt, it seems like with a fanny pack slung around his torso. I believe that's a body bag, but you're right in that it what? is the fanny pack. The fanny pack has rebranded itself as the cross body bag. Cool, because that looks super cool. For here in 2018. All right. Hey, I'm, I'm not here to tell you what the kids are into. Yeah. Also, I like his comments afterwards. Like he, he kept posting leading up to the event about like which seat he was going to take on the bus because he wasn't scared. Uh, and then I believe talking about how he was mad at the UFC that he wasn't on that bus that got the, uh, the hand truck thrown through it because now he can't sue anybody that he should sue them for not putting him on the bus. Uh, I mean, there's nothing for me not to like there. Yeah. If you can go out there and be finishing fights by both submission and TKL, now we might be, I mean, that's four in a row for him. Yep. We might be getting somewhere. Four wins in a row, seven and two in the UFC overall. <coughs> uh, it's an interesting question about the, the, the relative, uh, dearth of Canadian MMA stars now in the UFC. Obviously you had Rory McDonald recently cross the aisle and go over there to Bellator, George St. Pierre and what might turn out to be a short lived return to win the middleweight title for Michael Bisping. But over the last several years, it does feel like the UFC has, uh, turned its attention away from Canada for a while, it turned their attention toward Brazil. But at this point, it kind of feels like we are segueing out of that, uh, particular stage of, of infatuation as well. Uh, and I kind of wonder why. Is it just the absence of George St. Pierre? Is it that Rory McDonald never really, uh, became the huge, huge star? in the same vein as GSP and ultimately left the company or, or what is it been about the UFC uh, not having as much focus on Canada as it used to, because it used to be a hugely important demographic and a, a hugely important fan base for, for the UFC. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the UFC's playbook says first you look for a place that has a passionate fan base, and then you look for a guy they can get behind, a guy or a girl they can get behind. And if you don't have one, then you don't have all the pieces in play that you need. Uh, and now, for example, we're looking at uh, maybe Liverpool is going to be our new Dublin, which was itself the new Rio de Janeiro, which was itself the new Montreal. So, yeah, you need somebody, I guess, you can get behind and, and sell to that market, or at least the UFC seems to feel you do. And right now, you don't see a lot of that. But it's kind of, you know, like everything in the fight business, it can be cyclical, so who knows. Next question this week comes to us from Jeff of Atlanta. He writes, so at what point will MMA websites and journalists stop reporting on the WWE career or Ronda Rousey? I get it. Finally snapping her two-fight losing streak at WrestleMania last night was probably of interest to a lot of MMA fans. And I'll admit the clips of Rousey beating choke, being choke slammed through tables and performing uh, technically unsound suplex in the build-up to her first match piqued my curiosity. But as she made abundantly clear in a couple of ESPN appearances, she has no interest in talking about MMA. Uh, when will MMA return the favor? Um, I would be surprised if if MMA websites and journalists do a detailed deep dive into the WWE career of Ronda Rousey. If it continues for a long period of time, I think you got the, the, uh, uh, the initial interest just in her signing and the build up to this match. And of course, WrestleMania, uh, is, is a, a big day in, in the, the sports entertainment kind of in the, the, in the combat sports calendar every year. There are a lot of, uh, MMA fans that watch WrestleMania, even if they don't watch, uh, WWE year round. And, you know, maybe making us eat, eat our words, Ben, uh, all written reports that I've seen. I haven't had a chance to actually watch the match yet, but all written reports that I've seen says that Ronda actually crushed it at WrestleMania, that her match was awesome. Might have been the best match on the card. Uh, nonetheless, if she makes WWE her full time stop, just, you know, I don't think that you will see a lot of coverage. From MMA websites, it's kind of the same with Brock Lesnar, except maybe every time her contract is about to be up, and yeah. then you'll see uh, Ronda to return to UFC. Dot dot dot. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It makes sense to me that there would be some reporting on the her WrestleMania debut because people are still wondering, like, can she do this? Is this going to work out? Because if the answer is no, then it might change her prospects of you know where she stands in regards to MMA. But yeah, the same, I heard the same thing you did. Obviously, I didn't watch it either. But everybody's saying, hey, she did really well. Looks like a promising career is starting here and, you know, good for her. But I don't think people are going to be, you know, tuning in to MMA websites to read about how, how Ronda did on Raw last night. Right. So, yeah, I, I think that this initial burst of interest makes sense. But I expect and hope that it will taper off until uh, she needs to show up in the UFC offices wearing like a Zufa boxing t-shirt or something just to, to work up enough talk in order to get WWE to sign her to a lucrative new contract. Last question this week comes to us from Amy soon, uh, Patreon subscriber, Amy soon, by the way, what up? she writes, uh, was on the amazon.com as you do. And an ad to watch the ill-fated T Ferg and Lobov list UFC 223 on prime video popped up. Prime video is selling UFC pay-per-views. I've never noticed this before. I could be late to the party, but is this a sign that we are one step closer to a Fox free fight future? Please discourse and thanks. Uh, this is a relatively new deal, right, Ben? But yeah. one that does not necessarily. I don't know if it's the first one. Maybe the second one. Yeah. They, uh, it was, it was at least, or it was, you know, maybe a month ago, but not much longer than that, that, uh, 
the UFC announced this deal with Amazon Prime that that Amazon Prime will carry UFC pay-per-view events. Uh, and it was kind of rumored for a while before that that, uh, you know, some streaming services like Amazon, maybe even Facebook would be in the mix for this new UFC broadcast contract. So it's not a huge surprise. And it's not necessarily even a huge change from what the UFC has done in the past just because, you know, I don't know if you still can, but you used to be able to uh, stream the pay-per-view through Yahoo and stuff like that. Um, so it's not that big of a stretch to offer the chance to buy a UFC pay-per-view event through Amazon Prime, but I do wonder if it's something of a trial balloon just because, you know, all of the streaming services, Amazon, Netflix, whatever else you you got, they all kind of want to get in the live sports business because live sports, live televised sports is one of the few uh, real advertiser-rich commodities left in in uh, in broadcast right now, just because of streaming. And so Amazon and Netflix both kind of want to get in on the party. Maybe Facebook also, although it seems like they got their own problems, uh, right now. So like if you did see at least part of the UFC, uh, menu of live events get chopped up and, and divvied up to some kind of streaming service, I wouldn't be all that surprised. Well, yeah. And I think that. One thing that you can say to the UFC's credit over the years is that they've always been, if not an early adopter, at least an early considerer of various platforms to get their product in front of consumers. I mean, you remember back in the day when the prelims used to be on Facebook, uh, like you mentioned, selling pay-per-views through Yahoo. They were doing streaming before the technology was even good enough to do a streaming uh, pay-per-view event. They were still doing it. Uh, Fight Pass is another example of something like now a lot of people want to have their own like over-the-top uh, streaming services just dedicated to the thing and the UFC was one of the, the first big sports companies to really commit to that. And I think that, yeah, now as they're looking at the reality of what the new TV deal is going to bring or not going to bring, they are kind of keeping their options open. We We talked about not too long ago the news that the UFC's you know, new parent company Endeavor had also bought New Lion, the streaming company, the same streaming company that uh, got in trouble for not delivering a good streaming product at the Mayweather McGregor boxing match and had to offer a bunch of refunds after the UFC explicitly blamed it. But now uh, Endeavor owns that. And the reports are at least that it's at least a consideration for them that, hey, if they don't get what they want from the TV deal, maybe they'll just go direct to consumer uh, by streaming all the events. And I think that that's reflective of where a lot of people are right now where the the industry of TV and, and pay-per-view and all that stuff is changing so rapidly nobody knows for sure what's it going to look like in five years and so you know it makes sense to me that they would be considering other options yeah uh, they still make so much of their money through pay-per-view I, I think it's going to be you know we're gonna the UFC is probably going to stick to that as a traditional uh, broadcast format at least for a while but yeah they've always been pretty forward-looking in terms of technology so you know, if you see the UFC get more and more involved with with the streaming service, like I said, I will not be surprised. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for our Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Uh, the newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Uh, right now, though, Ben, let's get into a little bit more uh, discussion of what actually ended up happening at UFC 223. All right. First, let's flip the script and actually talk about Rose Namajunas versus Joanna Jacek first uh, for the strawweight title, just because I think that that 
ultimately turned out to be the most interesting of the two championship fights that happened at UFC 223. Also the one that didn't get very much attention leading up to the actual fight. Uh, and because it was because aside from being on the bus, when Conor McGregor threw that hand truck, uh, through the, <coughs> through the window of the bus, uh, there just wasn't a lot of, uh, extracurricular activity between Rose Namajunas and Ioana Jacek Ben, you could say they didn't get very much attention leading up to fight night because frankly, they did everything right. Yeah. And you know what? You see them actually get in there and put five rounds together of this fight and you think, man, they really were underappreciated because you didn't get a chance to shine a spotlight on how good this matchup was. And I think a lot of us didn't know quite what to expect of Rose Namajunas here in the rematch, like we talked about last week. Seemed like a lot of people kind of looking at her as if she had hit a half-court shot and weren't sure if she could do it again. And they go out there and had just an awesome fucking fight. The entire fight yeah. was really great. And you can't feel like either – like you knew going in there to the judge's decision, no matter which way this goes, you can't feel like either one of them uh, should feel really let down. It wouldn't be that surprising to see it go either way. Uh, although I did think that this was the right call uh, given the fight to Rose Namajunas. But really impressive performance, or like a mature performance by her, especially when you see the, you know, the ebbs and flows of the fight and to see her really turn it on in that fifth round. You think, man, this is, this could be a title reign that lasts for a little while. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, good performances from both fighters. Yolanda Yajacek had talked at length after her first loss, Rose Namajunas, that she had a terrible weight cut. And then, you know, she ended up parting ways with what is it called? Perfecting athletes. Uh, the, the, the company that does a lot of weight cuts for, uh, MMA fighters. She handled her weight cut on her own this time. Uh, showed up looking physically as good or better than we've ever seen her, looking very intense, looking like she was ready to go out there and take back the title from Rose Namajunas, which frankly I think is what a lot of people expected to happen. And then Ben, you're right. You get this, uh, uh, complete performance from Rose Namajunas, uh, where she, she got the better of many of the striking exchanges in this fight. Uh, particularly at the beginning and then at the end of the fight. Joanna uh, Jacek was clearly not to be denied either, though. She came back, kind of stormed back, really, in the uh, in the second or third and fourth rounds, and I think clearly won, won those. Uh, and then in like what I would consider to be almost an iconic MMA moment or performance, I guess you could say, Nama Yunus kind of switches up her strategy in that fifth round, and instead of, uh, you know, sticking and moving, getting out of the way when... when uh, Yolanda Jacek goes to counter back after their striking exchanges. She pretty much just goes straight into the teeth of Yolanda Jacek's attack, pushes the pace in that fifth round, uh, and ultimately salts away with what was a 49-46 uh, judge's verdict across the board. And I think, like, you're right, in the wake of it, I think we come away from this fight thinking uh, if Rose Namajunas has perfected the game enough to where she is this sort of complete fighter, um, she's going to be a problem for everyone. Yeah, and we've seen her submissions game and stuff in the past, but then to see that she can stand there for five rounds against Yuani and Jacek, you know, one of the the more feared uh, strikers in that division, and come out a winner, that's impressive. It also shows a whole lot of growth on her part, and so you start to wonder kind of where the ceiling is. I was a little bit surprised with Yuani and Jacek because it seemed like when she started having her best success was when she used the the leg kicks to kind of. Uh, form the base of the rest of her offense. And then it seemed like she got away from that, even after it was working. It also seemed like she just could not seem to figure out uh, the the left hook coming from Rose Namu. Same punch that dropped right. her in the first fight. And this time, just kept catching her over and over again. It just seemed like it was finding a, a, like a blind spot in her vision. 
Yeah, a really surprising that that left hook continued to be such a potent weapon for Rose Namajunas. And like you said, especially because that was the punch uh, that dropped Joanna Jacek in the first fight and led to the to the stoppage victory. Uh, yeah, and I think the leg kick really started to 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 pile up there in those third and fourth rounds, and and you know not only uh, kind of started and ended the the pinpoint striking combinations that we're used to seeing from Joanna Jacek, but made Rose Namajunas more of a stationary target. Uh, she was really having good success in those early rounds, you know, firing off, uh, ending with a hook, and then kind of getting out of the way of uh, the the technical striking combinations that Jacek had used. Uh, to just brutalize almost everyone else that she's fought. And toward the middle, uh, the leg kicks did seem to start to sort of slow down Rose Namajunas, make her that, you know, so that her lateral movement wasn't quite as effective, maybe. Uh, and to her credit, she, like, she came back out in that fifth. Uh, and you almost hate to say it this way, but it made it look like a performance where basically she kind of wanted it more. Like, she just went out there and was like, all right, last round, we're just going to let it all hang out and, and, got right in Jacek's face and, and uh, you know, maybe in, in a little bit of a changeup, uh, had even more success that way, maybe because Jacek wasn't really uh, expecting it or hadn't seen that sort of attack yet in the fight. Now what do you want to see uh, Yuanna and Jacek do? Are we talking like let's go to flyweight and see what we can do there? Or would you like to see her hang around, beat up some of the same people she's beaten up, and uh, try to get a third fight? There would be nothing wrong at all with watching – Rose Namajunas, Joanna Jacek three, and like you said, this performance was good enough for from both people that if Jacek did want to kind of stick around and and take on some contenders and build herself back up to to title uh, title fight status, like I, you know, I don't think you could really uh, fault her for that. But I do think moving up to flyweight would create uh, a, uh, an opportunity for her that would be kind of hard to pass up because she would go up there, continue to lessen the weight cut. We, you know, the weight cut yeah. is hard to 115. Going up to 125 might solve a lot of those problems. And additionally, you know, to that, you show up in this division that is basically just getting started in the UFC. Uh, we don't know much about it at all, aside from we have Nico Montano as a as the champion, and we have Valentina Shevchenko as the sort of as, assumed number one contender. If you're Joanna Yajajic and you go up to 125. You're you're right there, like from day one. Yeah. You're you're basically a top, maybe the top contender. And you know, it's not like Joanna Yajajic is on the verge of being over the hill. It's not like she's almost done in this sport by any stretch of the imagination. If I were her, I'd go up to to flyweight, make a run there, see what happens. Maybe win the title, maybe not. You always have time if you continue to possess the physical capability. You always have time to come back down to strawweight if you need to do it. Yeah. So then we have that in the co-main event where. Two mostly overlooked fighters because they weren't wrecking shit or ruining anything, but on a great classic fight. Then we go right to the main event where Khabib Nurmagomedov against crazy raging ally Akinta, who basically knocks over a TV monitor on his way to the cage and then is just like, ah, fuck it. Uh, and this one plays out in a lot of ways kind of like we thought it would. At least until the part where Nurmagomedov decides, you know what, I'll just stand here and jab this guy while he talks shit. Yeah, I was surprised that uh, the UFC broadcast team went so negative on this fight. It seemed like, and I don't really know why, and maybe it was because Nurmagomedov didn't just blow through Ally Aquinta. Uh, but this this fight played out almost as sort of a classic Nurmi fight. And I think by those middle rounds, he had decided uh, that he was so much better than Al and could, in fact, take him down kind of whenever he wanted to, that he would that he would stand there and, and do the striking thing with him. Uh 
and you know he won the fight 40-44 and then 40-43 or 50 I'm sorry 50-44 and 50-43 uh on two judges cards so it was a wipeout it was a domination by Habib Nurmagomedov no kind of an awesome moment when Ali Akita is standing there yes. listening to the judges and pointing at himself like is it me is it good am I did I get this one make no mistake Rage and Al acted awesome the whole time yes, throughout entire this entire time. thing and then I saw him on Twitter uh maybe it was today maybe it was a tweet from yesterday uh Saying that Conor McGregor was worse than a realtor who shows yes. up during during your house tour, which <laughs> I guess I'm kind of a mark for Ally Aquinta's real estate burns. Uh, but at the same time, like uh, for a guy with a sh- who showed up for UFC 223 Fight Week and didn't have a sign with his name on it at the media day, had to make his own damn sign. Like you know, this is a good opportunity for him. We think he probably got paid some money to go out there and fight Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, and he kind of played it off that way. Played it off like. Uh, you know, it was no big deal basically to, to, to take what amounted to a beating, although it wasn't as physically harrowing as it might have been. Well, it did though put Khabib in the situation where, like, if you're Ally Akita and you win or even just put forth a good showing, hey, your stock rockets up. And if you're Nurmagomedov, you absolutely have to win this fight. And you gotta kinda crush the guy. And you could even hear it from, you know, you mentioned the, the commentary, which it seemed like, you know, they don't want to spend five rounds just being like, a broken record telling us how Khabib is dominating this fight, and so they're kind of looking for something else to talk about. Uh, but even Nurmagomedov's own corner, when you know heading into the fifth round, where you could hear him telling him, "Hey, you should finish this guy. You can finish this guy. If you take him down, you can finish this guy. Like, don't stand there and play with him, uh, throwing jabs at him. Take him down and put him away." Like they seemed to sense that this was what was expected of Nurmagomedov in this fight. You need to absolutely crush the guy to prove how much better you are. And I think that that perception does work against the heavy favorite in a fight like this where the other guy is coming in late. But, I mean, you do also have to give Norman Gomenov credit for, like, how many different opponents he went through facing, like, in a week. Like, and he and he was just nonplussed about all of them. Tony Ferguson, okay, now it's Max Holloway, fine. Uh, maybe Anthony Pettis, whatever. Uh, Ally Quinta, fine, let's do that. Like, just not bothered at all by that whole situation. And I think that, that does tell you something about the guy. So now, though, the question that I had was, you got this fight where you basically just took away two other people's titles because it was more convenient that way. You have this fight where Nurmagomedov goes out there. We already regard him as one of the best lightweights in the world. But then he beats Ally Quinta, and that's what makes him a champion. It makes it a little hard to know exactly how we're supposed to think of everybody in the pecking order right now. I mean, Dana White came out there with that, like, hey, it's a title fight regardless of what the commission says because if you beat the man, then you're the man. But who was the man here? Like, neither one of them had been the man coming in. And, like, this is a fight where anybody else beats Ally Quinta. We don't consider that championship material necessarily because of just where everybody is right now. Nurmagomedov does it. We already wanted to consider him a champion, it seems. Like, that's the UFC's perspective. And so, fine, he has the belt now. Are you looking at Nurmagomedov and saying that's the legit champion of the world at 155 right now? I mean, I think the legit 155-pound champion is probably still Conor McGregor uh, in most people's eyes. I think Habib Nurmagomedov just being undefeated and, you know, having as much success in the UFC as he had had even leading up to this fight had long been ticketed as a guy that we would like to see fight for the title, as a guy who could be the most difficult stylistic matchup for Conor McGregor in the entire UFC. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to, you can't sneeze at Habib. Like the guy has the, has a belt around his waist. He's not undeserving of being considered a champion. He's undefeated. But at the same time, uh, 
you know, you do as crazy as all of the stuff that happened at UFC 223 feels, it is also entirely preamble. It's right. the, it's the preface to the book. And as crazy it is, as it has been, and especially after Tony Ferguson and Max Holloway both dropped out, the rest of it felt like, at least from the UFC's perspective, let's just get the belt on Nurmagomedov and move on. And so that's where we are now. And so I think the really interesting question is, Conor McGregor, in the wake of this bus attack, does he return to the UFC? And if he does return, uh, who does he fight? Is Habib Nurmagomedov the fight that Conor McGregor takes? Or does he fall back on a third fight with Nate Diaz? Or does he, you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat in terms of a huge super fight with somebody like George St. Pierre? I'm going to say this to you right now, and I mean it. You got The UFC has this footage of Conor McGregor attacked, allegedly, attacking a bus that because it contains Khabib Nurmagomedov. And what they decide to do instead with one of what we, for all we know, at any point could be Conor McGregor's last MMA fight is book him for a, a trilogy with Nate Diaz. I fucking quit. I quit the whole scene, man. If you want to get rid of me, that's how you get rid of me. Go ahead and completely ignore this this potential fight that you have here between McGregor and Nurmagomedov and instead do some warmed over shit from a couple years ago. Then I'll I'll be out of here. If you're Conor McGregor, is that the fight? Like, because we, you know, the story of Conor McGregor for a few years now has been that he's been in control of these negotiations. Basically, you know, the UFC makes exceptions for him that it has not made for anyone else in its history. And so he's obviously going to be, uh, uh, he's going to have a, a great say in who he fights next. I wonder if he squandered any of that political capital with this bus attack uh, stunt, or, or if he will still be able to kind of pick and choose his own path. Uh, and if he is able to pick his own path, do you think Khabib Nurmagomedov is the guy that he will fight? Like, like I said before, hey, if, you wanted to, if you wanted the guy so badly, you were trying to smash bus windows to get to them. How can you justify not saying yes to an offer to fight him for money in a cage? True, true. Uh, and you know, after watching Khabib Nurmagomedov fight Ally Quinta, and you know, like I said before, it seemed like a performance where he had decided that he was so much better than the other guy that maybe he was going to mess around a little bit in the middle of those rounds. But I still have the exact same questions that I had about Habib Nurmagomedov versus Conor McGregor as I had coming into this fight. And that is to say, I have no fucking idea what would happen if these two guys fought. If you told me that because Habib Nurmagomedov basically carries his chin like the signal flag on a sailing boat, uh, just flying out there for anybody to see that Conor McGregor walks into that cage immediately lands a left hand and knocks him out cold i i would believe you i wouldn't be surprised if you told me that conor mcgregor couldn't lay a glove on habib Nurmagomedov and ends up getting taken down and brutalized for five rounds en route to a 50 45 loss i would also believe that yeah no i feel the same way about it but i think that if you're the ufc and you want to return any hint of legitimacy and like uh you know you fight number two to become number one, and then you fight the champion to become the champion, like that old-fashioned kind of idea about how to move ahead in combat sports, uh, then this is the fight you have to make. You went through all this stuff to put a belt on Nurmagomedov, and you're lucky in that Nurmagomedov is the kind of fighter where it's not hard to look at him and feel like that could be easily the best lightweight in the world. You know, nothing about the way the title found its way to his waist seems like uh, the legitimate course of, of business in combat sports, but I think you might have, through the wrong process, got the right guy. It's possible. You have to have that fight against Conor McGregor in order to make sure that we can all look at it and be like, it's truly the undisputed title. 
Because right now, when you hear Bruce Buffer get in there with his magic eye suit and talk about how this is the undisputed lightweight championship of the world, and you're like, I cannot remember a more disputed championship. There's like three of these things floating around right now. Much of the pay-per-view business still seems like alchemy to me. I don't <coughs> always fully understand what it is that makes one fight huge, uh, you know, and another fight just sort of like marginal business. And clearly leading up to UFC 223, one of the knocks against Habib Nurmagomedov has always been, is he going to be a big enough star for to be worth Conor McGregor's time? Uh, does this bus stunt make Nurmagomedov versus McGregor a huge pay-per-view fight? Yes. How? How is that a thing? I still, at this point, kind of don't understand all this stuff. I honestly feel like whenever I see something and I'm like, well, that's just dumb. Everyone else in the world is like, take my $65 and let me watch this fight. Well, already Conor McGregor versus anybody is going to be a huge pay-per-view fight. So you're just kind of talking about like, are we going to do 1.2 million or 1.6? You know, you're, you're not talking about the difference between a huge success and a total bust. Uh, I mean, look at, like, Nate Diaz was not, like, a huge star or anything, and they managed to make some of the biggest pay-per-views the UFC's ever seen. So I think Norman Gomedov is a guy who right now, you know, inside the MMA bubble, everybody knows him outside, probably not. But if you get the McGregor spotlight on him, and you've seen what he can do, like, even, like, his broken English quips are so much better promotional material than a lot of native English speakers will give you. So that's not a barrier. Uh, I mean, maybe, you know, it's not like you're going to draw on the huge uh, Dagestani population that's going to sit there and buy a pay-per-view. Like, you don't have that that huge national wave of enthusiasm uh, that will translate in the pay-per-view buys the way you do with Conor McGregor and, and George St. Pierre and guys like that. But I think once people get to realize, like, what the story is here and a story that you can get their attention on by just showing a, you know, close-up video of one guy running with a goddamn hand truck held aloft over his head while he throws it into the window of a bus, like, that gets people's attention enough that you can tell them the story, which is half the battle there as a fight promoter. So, yeah, I think you you do huge number. You could probably do two million pay-per-view buys if you put together the right card with those two guys on it and if you can actually make it happen as planned on the Saturday night. I just don't know who is sitting at home and they see a guy throw a hand truck through a bus window and is like, Marge, give me my debit card. We're, we're, this, we're ordering this pay-per-view. Really? Guy, guy threw a uh, dolly you, at a bus. You don't understand I, that? I, I mean, I guess I sort of do. It just it's seems so weird. The oldest trick in the fight promotion book is like these two guys actually hate each other. Yeah. And, you know, Mike Tyson charges off the podium to go over there and uh, try to bite Lennox Lewis on the leg. And there well, we are. that's different, though. I mean, that's a, that's a press conference. That everyone loves a good biting, right? This is a guy attacking a bus. Well, we're looking at Conor McGregor seeming like he might be in the out of control Mike Tyson spiral phase of his career. Has so he I don't know if it is so different. The Tyson zone? He, I mean, we were talking about the Tyson zone. Like, if, if we tell you, like, guess who, you'll never guess who threw a hand truck through the window of a bus. Yes, you will. Yeah. You yes, you totally, will. You totally will. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co main event podcast. Uh, this weekend, we got a pretty good fight. UFC on Fox, uh, Dustin Poirier against Justin Gaethje. That one's probably going to be worthwhile to watch. Carlos Condit versus other Cowboy. Oh, that's re- right. Replacement for Matt Brown. Yeah, got got Cowboy V.2 uh, stepping in there. So that, that'll be fun to watch. We'll probably break down the stuff that happens at that event next on next week's show, uh, you know, barring any further bus attacks. Don't forget the brunch of champions on Friday. That's coming up on Friday morning. 
uh, see what kind of pastries I bring over to Ben Folks' house. This is so, so exciting. The suspense is killing I, me. I, are we taking questions? I still don't know exactly what the run of play for this streaming event sure, is. Sure, we can take questions. Do we it. need people to email us questions to this, the, the top no, secret Patreon, Patreon email account? Uh, no, they can just ask them right on the post. There'll be a post uh, on, like, if you go to co or patreon.com slash co-main event under posts, you'll find the post with the, the streaming video on it, and you can just comment right on that. We'll refresh that page every once in a while so we see the comments. You can uh, communicate with us that way. All right, tune in for that Friday morning. As for right now, we are done, we are through, we are out. So I thought... Just before I head out, I'd make sure to just touch as much stuff as I possibly can. You're going to run around this place licking doorknobs? Yeah. That's uh, gross, man. Maybe uh, make myself a plate of pasta, something like that. Uh, I was going to eat up this coffee, but I see that's not good. Maybe I'll set the microwave up for the stream. Have it on the coffee table. Or-